Welcome to the Rebel at Large Adventure Podcast. I'm Drifter. And I'm Gypsy. Talking about ghost town, graveyards, outlaws, heroes, and ladies of the night. Howdy folks, thanks for joining us for yet another adventure. Today, we're going to talk about a real life horror story. Tis the season, is it not? We'll be going from one side to the other of the remnants of the prehistoric Lake Bonneville what is now known as Utah Lake near the center of the state itself. So grab a drink, turn the lights down low, and go back in time with us to the late 1800s. So in 1895, Utah had what is believed to be its first serial killer. Ooh. In December 1894, 22-year-old Albert Enstrom left his mother, Caroline Hayes, and his stepfather, Harry Hayes, in Eureka, Utah, to go work on the farm his mother owned in Pelican Point, just some 30 miles away. He took a team of horses, a new wagon, and supplies with him so he could fix the place up. His two cousins, 21-year-old Andrew Johnson and 18-year-old Alfred Nielsen, soon joined him at the ranch. The boys wanted to have a place of their own and wanted to try and make a living working for themselves. I just imagine these three boys all pumped up and excited to go live on their own in this cabin. And Raising their own cows. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of sad now. Mm. Well, Albert's. Uh, <laughs> now it's sad. But it wasn't yeah. before. Well, <laughs> yeah. It's always sad, I guess. Well, Albert's stepfather, Harry Hayes, on the other hand, did not like the fact that Albert would inherit the ranch. And he actually wanted to sell the ranch and get rid of it. Wanted the money. Yep. Yeah. Wanted the money now instead of waiting to maybe fight for it if mom passed away before he did. Right. So according to the Herald Report. He had ill will towards the boys and threatened them with violence. The boys were seen working the ranch throughout December and January by neighbors. They even had help from a young man named John Barnes. But little did John know that he would be the last one to see the boys alive on February 16th. Over the next few days, neighbors started to notice the cabin looking as if it was abandoned. They stated the cattle, pigs, and sheep were running loose and the chickens were dying. Some of the neighbors even visited the cabin and found that it was locked and empty. On March 4th, a family living nearby wrote a letter to Harry Hayes, letting him know that the cabin seemed to be empty and the animals were dying. Caroline was worried something may have happened to the boys and wanted to go check on them. Harry, on the other hand, wanted nothing to do with it. So Caroline and a friend left Eureka to check on the cabin. Harry felt that the boys uh, left to go to Arizona. Oh, so that was his excuse of why he didn't go. I'm done with that. Is he said, well, they told me they were leaving to Arizona, so. Yeah, doesn't seem so likely. Yeah. <laughs> well, when she arrived, she found the cabin was empty. The horses and wagon were gone, along with a plow and other tools. Inside the cabin showed a different story. She found that the boys had not taken their shoes or clothes. This was odd, as winter was coming to an end, but it was still cold outside. She immediately felt that something was wrong. And she was right. On or about April 15, 1895, a young sheep herder was walking near Pelican Point. He came across a corpse of a young man laying face down in the water. The body looked to have been floating in the water for several months. It was swollen and partially decomposed. But one thing was clear. The body had been shot twice in the chest. Though the body looked terrible, it was still identifiable. And it came to be known the man on the river was Albert Enstrom. Over the next few days, the bodies of Andrew Johnson and Alfred Nielsen surfaced, and they too had been shot. It was determined that Albert was shot twice in the chest. 
Andrew was shot from behind with a bullet going in just behind his right ear and coming out the other side. Alfred was also shot from behind with a bullet entering in about the center of the back of his head and coming out between his eyes. Wasn't there a gangster that got shot in the eye? Yeah. Bugsy. Uh, Yeah, he was shot in the back of the head through a window and his eye was found up by the TV. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it was believed that the boys were all shot with the same forty-four caliber rifle. It's a big bullet. Yeah. Well, the three boys were laid to rest in the Benjamin Cemetery on the east side of Utah Lake, opposite of Pelican Point. This became known as the Pelican Point Massacre or the Pelican Point Murders. With very little to go on as to who shot the boys, suspicion quickly turned to Harry Hayes, according to the Herald newspaper. Hayes was extremely indifferent and did nothing whatever to aid the officers. He had ill will towards the boys and threatened them with violence. On December 4th, 1895, nine months after the murders, Harry was arrested for the crime and charged with first-degree murder. On March 24th, 1896, the trial for Harry began. The evidence was circumstantial and there was really no clear motive as to why Harry would do this. None of that mattered. On April 1st, the jury returned with a verdict. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty of murder in the first degree as charged in the indictment. Harry sat there alone by his attorneys as the verdict was read and he began rocking himself back and forth. His right leg was crossed over his left knee and his hands were clasped over his right knee. On April 27th, 1896, Harry was brought before the judge again, this time for his sentencing. Judge McGarty asked Harry to come forward as he read off his sentence. He said, You have been found guilty of murder in the first degree by the killing of Albert Hayes, alias Enstrom, on the 16th of February, 1895. Have you anything to say why sentence should not now be passed? Harry responded, Yes, sir, I have. I am not guilty of the deed committed. The judge did not care what he said and continued on with the sentencing. The crime for which you are convicted is punishable by death, and the statute provides that you can choose between hanging and shooting. Have you any choice? So if I'm correct, I think you can still choose to be shot to death in the state of Utah if you get a a sentence like this. A death sentence, yeah. Yeah, but I could be wrong. Firing squad. Yeah, I think that we can still do that here. It seems that way. Yeah. Well, Harry responded with, If I must lose my life for those boys who I did not kill, I have no choice. The judge responds, You say you have no choice? Harry says, No, sir. I have none. The judge hesitated for a moment and then said, The sentence is that you be taken by the sheriff of this county to some convenient and private place in this county, and there be hanged by the neck until dead. That's all. Harry was devastated. During the entire time he was locked up, he did nothing but profess his innocence. His wife even stood by his side, believing that he had nothing to do with the murders. Which would be kind of difficult for her. Yeah, and your son's suspected to be killed and you (laughs) might have done it. Yeah. But she was right there saying, well, he was here the whole time. He never left. It's 30 miles away by horse. It's going to take you a day to get out there, if not longer. Yeah. And then a day or so to get back and there was no time that he was gone. Maybe she had a real solid alibi saying, yeah, he's an asshole, but he didn't do it. There's no way he could have been gone. Yeah. Yep. Well, as he walked out of the courtroom, he grabbed his hat and said, I'm ready, Sheriff. How sad. The day of execution was set for June 19th. 
Well, his attorneys argued for a new trial and asked for 40 days to get things ready. The motion was granted, but the date was set, so they needed to hurry if they were going to save Harry. While they were preparing for a new trial with the Utah Supreme Court, Harry decided to fire his attorneys, and this gave him more time. His new execution date was set for January 22, 1897. I wonder if firing the attorneys was suggested by his attorneys just to give him some time. I don't, I don't feel like that's something that he would have known, is it? Yeah, I kind of wondered that, and I tried to look more into it. But back then, like, the newspapers were so odd, and they would go into, like, really in-depth things about some stuff. And then other things that would be, like, they would have a section that was basically, like, prison bulletins. Mm -hmm. And so it would be, like, updating things on the prisoners. And so it was just this, like, small little article of, like, Harry Hayes fired his attorneys. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I couldn't really figure out why, but it would make sense that he's like, um, yeah, you guys aren't ready and they're going to hang me in two weeks. So if I fire you, I get more time. Yeah, the tactic may have saved his life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the one thing throughout the entire court case was that no one could explain what happened to the stolen items. The horses and wagon were still missing, but where could they have gone, right? No. Well, they thought that maybe Harry had sunk them in the water with the bodies. But after several days of dredging the lake, with nothing coming up, they determined the wagon was not there. Okay, so this crossed my mind when I was doing the research. How would you dredge a lake back in the 1890s? By paddle boat. Would it have been? Yeah, paddle and boat and chains. A, a chain, okay. Yeah, That's like, would they have two boats and like one on each side and then a chain hooked to each boat and like a iron piece of iron sunk to the bottom, dragging it? Like, I don't know. It just seems yeah, so. Yeah, flipped over plows and farm equipment, something mm-hmm. like that. Who knows? But Utah Lake's not very deep. Oh, it's not? No, the whole lake is real shallow all the way across. Okay. That's the lake that um, every few years, like it grows that crazy moss, isn't it? Yeah, an algae. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, just because it is so shallow. Uh huh. Well, that's interesting. Well, thanks for going down that with me. Yeah. <laughs> Over the next few months, Harry sat in his prison cell being interviewed by the newspapers. He told the reporters from the Salt Lake Tribune on May 30th. It begins to look like I would have to die. And I'm not worrying about it. The only thing I hate about it is that I have to die a felon. So his wife was paying for everything, and Harry was upset that she was going broke trying to save him. He told the reporter... I don't want that little lady, my wife, to spend her last dollar on me. She's already had to spend a great deal. It cost her nearly $300 for detectives trying to find out who did the deed. Then she paid White Cotton $100, which she didn't need to do. His agreement with me was that it shouldn't cost me a cent if he didn't clear me. I had no money. Though he protests his innocence, he was ready to die just to save his wife the burden of having to pay his bills. Well, that $100 and $300 paid out earlier would be about $3,500 and nearly eleven grand today. Yeah, that's a big chunk of change for them. Yeah. A petition was going around the state seeking signatures for Harry to change his sentence from death to a life sentence. Several members of the Salt Lake Bar even signed it because they believe the state didn't have enough evidence to sentence him to death, Mm -hmm. which that's a big thing to have those guys step up and sign this petition. Yeah. But they're right, though. It's all all circumstantial evidence. Yep. On January 12th, 1897, Harry was brought before the judge just days before he was to be hanged. 
His attorney pleaded his case and stated that he was tried unfairly and asked for a writ of habeas corpus, which indicates they find his imprisonment unlawful. Mm -hmm. Nothing to hold him on. Yeah. Four days later, on January 16th, the Supreme Court denied his petition. Two days later, the Board of Pardons announced they were changing Harry's sentence to life imprisonment. The ruling came out just four days before Harry was to be hanged. These guys moved fast back then. Yeah. Well, he may not be a free man, but he was still alive, so that's good. Yeah, bonus points there. On January 4th of 1897, Utah County received a new sheriff, Sheriff George Stores. He was preparing for the execution of Harry Hayes and had even purchased a new rope in St. Louis to hang him with. Once Harry's conviction was turned from a death sentence to life in prison, Storrs began to wonder if something was missing. He brought a new set of eyes to the investigation as to what really happened at Pelican Point. He started looking into the missing property as well as tried to track down a man named Stevens. Yeah, Harry Hayes kept saying, you need to find Stevens, you need to find Stevens. But nobody knew what he was talking about. Mm -hmm. So that's where he decided that he'd start trying to figure that out. That makes sense. A few months into his investigation, he got a major tip. Someone told him that a suspected cattle thief named James G. Weeks had the stolen property from the Hayes Ranch. But when he jumped his bill bonds, his wife was forced to sell the property to someone in Mapleton, Utah. So just a little side note. In August of 1895, Sheriff Brown and Marshall Stores, which he's now the sheriff, mm -hmm. captured and arrested James Weeks. He was charged with stealing seven head of cattle. He was able to make the $400 bail bond and was out of jail. Which would be about fourteen grand today. That's a big bail bond. <laughs> and if you remember, the three boys were killed in February of that year. Mm -hmm. So Weeks had skipped out on his bail at this point, and now Stores was trying to track him down. Well, during his investigation, he found out that around the time of the murder, a man named Weeks, or Case, had a covered wagon full of tools. He was going around the area trying to sell the stuff to neighbors. He told folks his name was Stevens. He even went so far as to show them a picture of his baby and told them her name was Ruthie. Stories went to Mapleton to retrieve the property. He then brought it back to Carolyn Hayes. She was able to identify a quilt, pieces of Albert's clothing, and other property that was missing from the ranch. The sheriff was becoming more convinced that Harry did not kill the boys, but this was not enough to free the man. As he interviewed more people, he found out that the man named Stevens would go by different names, but who was he really? No, I don't even know. <laughs> he then discovered a letter addressed to Mrs. Weeks that had been signed by a C.T. Case from Rangeley, Colorado. So off to Colorado, he went to try and track this man down. Well, based on the charges of cattle theft and skipping out on bail, Stores was able to obtain an arrest warrant from the governor. He was going to use this to arrest James Weeks once he was able to find him. Then once he had him behind bars, he was going to try and charge him with the crime of murder. But he had no idea how difficult it would be to track him down. Stores seemed to always be one step behind Weeks through the investigation. This whole thing makes me kind of wonder how many people back then actually changed their name throughout their life. Oh, yeah. And just that's the life they lived is 
I'm in a new town with a new name. I would have done it every week. Yeah, just yeah. because you could. <laughs> it's like, you know what? I don't like this identity. I'm going to move and go be someone else. <laughs> yeah. No beard, has a beard, hair, no hair. Yeah. Just for fun. Yep. Just because I can, right? Mm -hmm. Well, Star's headed to Colorado to try and track down Weeks. When he arrived in Denver, he saw a news article in the Denver Republican with a headline that read, After 19 months, the murder of W.C. Crampton nears a solution. Below the headline was a picture of none other than Weeks. Mm. In the article, he found that Weeks was going by the name C.T. Case. He arrived in Colorado in September of 1895 and settled in Rangeley. Weeks told everyone that he was the nephew of a construction and agricultural equipment manufacturer named Jerome Increase Case. That is quite the, the middle name. Increase, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure his story gets bigger every time he tells it. <laughs> Ta -da -da. Dad joke done. <laughs> Anyways, according to the article, Case was described as... His schemes for mills and large enterprises were the ones on which the camp based its hopes of prosperity. A plausible talker, sociable, personally attractive, educated, raised in the technique of geology, he passed for the man the camp could rely upon, pulling it out of any difficulty when the value in the veins showed the need for mills and capital to assist in the conversion into gold. Things in Rangeley were going well for weeks until he got greedy. On January 20th, 1896, 11 months after the three boys in Pelican Point were murdered, he struck again. This time he killed W.C. Crampton at his ranch in Current Creek. They said they found his body in a manure pile. That's shitty. <laughs> no, but really, like, <laughs> it kind of sucks. Like, you couldn't have been a little respectable? Nope. <laughs> well, throughout the investigation on Crampton, it was determined that Weeks had been the man that killed him. Stores stayed in Colorado hoping to be able to talk to Weeks, but he learned that Weeks had given the authorities in Chicago the slip, and there was no likelihood of him being captured and brought back to Colorado. Well, with no hope of finding Weeks in Colorado, Stores headed back to Utah. He was able to get some more information about Weeks when a man gave him the P.O. Box address for a Jenny Wright in Fowler, New York. Store sent a letter to the authorities in New York and was able to determine that a Jenny Wright was living with her mother just outside of Fowler, and she also went by the name Mrs. George Wright. They also told him that her husband had visited her about a year ago and stayed in the area for about a week. The New York authorities also told him that Jenny has been receiving mail from him and that they have the postmaster in agreement to ascertain any letters that are mailed to her. While he was communicating with authorities in New York, he and his deputies were doing investigation work in Utah. They were able to find out that George Wright, his wife and baby, had moved to Salt Lake around 1891. That is when his name started changing from George, then to James, then to Stephen, as well as different last names. He got a big break in the case when he talked to William Beckstead. William told him that he had traded his shuttler wagon with Wright slash Weeks. I don't know what last name you guys want to pick anymore now. <laughs> For a three and one quarter Cooper wagon. This would be discovered to be the same wagon that the boys were using at the Hayes Ranch before they were killed when the family members were able to confirm that it was it. Well, Storrs didn't stop trying to figure out who Weeks slash Wright really was. He wanted to find the man and bring him to justice for what was suspected he had done to the boys. 
Stores found out that Wright's father was Abner Wright and lived in Owatonna, Minnesota. He also found out that he went to Ann Arbor, Michigan to study to be a lawyer. While living in Michigan, he was getting ready to marry Alma. The day of the wedding, he was about to be arrested for embezzlement charges. He left with Alma before he was arrested, and they were unable to find him to make the actual arrest. Stories even found out that the Pinkerton's National Detective Agency had investigated him. They sent Stories a letter stating... He had committed forgeries and embezzlements with every one of the mining companies he was connected with, and was a clever forger and an all-around crook. They know one thing, and that is he is the cleverest all-around scoundrel they ever met in their lives. The Pinkertons also confirmed that Wright had a wife living in New York. Storr started working with the New York authorities to try and get Jenny to squeal on her husband. They even came up with an idea to have a detective try and date Jenny and then see if he could get her to talk. (laughs) Sleaky. Ultimately, it was the promise of immunity that made Jenny Wright want to come back to Utah and tell the true story about what happened to the three boys in Pelican Point. On January 15, 1899, she arrived in Provo, Utah with Storrs to submit her deposition. While Storrs was on his way back to Utah with Jenny, Harry Hayes was still locked up in prison. On January 14, 1899, the Salt Lake Tribune posted an article stating, Mr. Hayes, in talking over his chances for a pardon, was very much opposed to receiving a pardon, claiming that if he was liberated in this manner, there would be people who would still consider him guilty and he did not want anyone to think him guilty of the Pelican Point murder. He wanted a new trial when he claimed he would be able to prove his innocence. When he was told he could not get a new trial because the jury had already heard his case and the judgment was sustained, he went on to say, A new trial was the only way by which justice could be done to him, and suggested that he could be tried for the killing of one of the other boys, Johnson or Nelson. So if you remember, they only found him guilty of killing his stepson. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, Jenny wrote up her deposition on the murders. In it, she talks about them moving from city to city before they settled in Salt Lake in 1890. She explains that when she married her husband, he proclaimed himself a wealthy man, and she never bothered to understand where the money came from. She told him he would disappear in the middle of the night and return the next morning with money, stating that he had sold shares in a mining interest. She stated, I dare not inform on him because I was afraid of him. I was in fear of my life. I felt he would kill me if I exposed him. She continued on saying they moved to Utah County in early 1895 and that George had left her in January to find work. She only received a few letters from him until he returned to her early in March. This time, he had with him a team consisting of a three and a quarter Cooper wagon, nearly new, and two horses. One a dark bay and the other a light bay. Both horses had a brand of an H with a quarter circle over it. When she asked him where he got the team, he told her that he had stolen them. He then tried to get her to poison the horses, but she said it made her feel uncomfortable. After he traded the wagon to Beckstead, he killed the horses himself. She also told them about an odd dinner conversation she had when a friend came to visit. Tom Williams told the couple about the boys being found dead at Pelican Point and said George looked ghastly pale. Over the next few days, Jenny started putting the pieces together. But the thing that confirmed it for her that George had killed the boys is when the newspapers described what the boys were dressed in, when last seen, and the items that were stolen. She recalled seeing some of the items in their cabin that were said to have been missing from Pelican Point. Jenny needed to get out. 
She needed to be away from George so she could protect herself and her daughter. She told them that on May 18, 1897, she moved to Fowler, New York, and that was the last time she saw him. He would send letters to her from time to time, but that was all. Though he was a wanted man in several states, he was never captured. There were sightings of him in Oklahoma and even as far as Hawaii, but he eventually disappeared from history. Governor Wells of Utah offered a $500 reward for Wright's arrest, but no one was ever able to collect the money. And that's nearly $18,000 today. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks to Jenny's testimony and Storr's hard detective work, Harry Hayes was released from the prison a free man after serving four years in jail for a crime he did not commit. Storrs may not have found the real killer, but he saved an innocent man from the gallows. Harry went on to live his life the best he could until he passed away on August 9th, 1911 at the age of 56 from consumption. Like we mentioned before, the three boys, Albert Instrom, Alfred Nelson, and Andrew Johnson were all buried in the Benjamin Cemetery. Harry Hayes was placed not only in the same cemetery as the three boys, but is buried right next to them. Yeah, we got a picture of all of it, so mm. we'll make sure to post them. Nope. Last weekend, we loaded up Marley and headed south. We wanted to see the resting spot for these boys and pay our respect. The cemetery is small and very quiet. It's located in a small farming town with friendly people and the smell of manure as you step out of your car. Absolutely. <laughs> farming town. Alfred Nilsson and Andrew Johnson share a headstone. It's a four-sided headstone. And on one side it says, Memory of Alfred Nilsson, aged 17 years, said to be massacred, February 16, 1895, at rest. The other side reads, In memory of Andrew Johnson, aged 20 years, said to be massacred, February 16, 1895, at rest. The other side has an inscription on it that reads, Cursed is the man in void of law and right, unworthy property, unworthy light, unfit for public or private care, whose lust is murder and whose horrid joy is theft. Albert is next to his two cousins, and he shares a headstone with his sister, Amelia Enstrom, who passed away in 1889 at the age of 18. His headstone is small and looks like at one point it had something on top of it and possibly something below it. What is left of his headstone that you can see is the two hands shaken. And yes, we counted all the fingers. There's five on each hand. <laughs> so we always do. Yep. Uh, it bears his name, Albert S. N. Anstrom, born May 18, 1872, was said to be massacred February 16, 1895. There's an inscription below, and we tried and tried to read it, but unfortunately, weather has taken most of it off. Yeah, I think we were able to determine like two words out of it. <laughs> yeah, the beginning of a couple lines in there, but that was mm -hmm. it. It faded out too bad. Yep. Well, next to Albert is Harry Hayes. His headstone has the most unique inscription on it, and it is fully intact. It is a four-sided monument with writing on only one side. The writing reads, in memory of Harry F. Hayes, September 19, 1854 to August 9, 1911. Below is the inscription. Him shall the scorn and wrath of men pursue with deadly aim, and malice, envy, spite, and lies shall desecrate his name. But with truth shall conquer at the last, for round and round we run, and sever the right comes uppermost, and ever is justice done. After Harry passed away, Caroline moved to Spanish Fork, Utah. She had outlived all four of her children, was divorced once, and widowed once. 
On June 16, 1931, she married Llewellyn Morris Jones in Farmington. The two of them were not married long when Llewellyn passed away on March 24, 1935, at the age of 65. He was buried in the Spanish Fork City Cemetery. After he passed away, she moved in with her nephew, O.P. Tyrell. She lived to be 87 years old, just nine days shy of being 88 when she passed away on February 3, 1936. She was laid to rest in the Benjamin Cemetery next to Harry. Though Harry had a large headstone with plenty of room to place her marker on it, she has her own small flat headstone. It is very simple with her name Carolyn Hansen and Strim Hayes on it, and below has her birthday listed as February 12, 1848 to February 3, 1936. So I didn't put this in here, but her four children that she did have were from her first husband. She never had children with Harry. Oh, or the second husband. That's why he was so angry. Yeah. And then the first husband's buried in Manti. We know where Harry's buried. And then we know where the third husband's buried. But the third husband had another wife. Oh. And she's buried in a different cemetery. So this poor man was married twice. Mm. And is not by either of his wives. Mm. Yeah. A little side note for you guys there. We went down a mine shaft, right? Right. <laughs> well, after visiting the cemetery, we headed out to Pelican Point. It is located on the western shore of Utah Lake, just south of Saratoga Springs. Benjamin's located on the eastern shore of Utah Lake, so we kind of had to drive around the lake to get to it. Mm. There isn't really much left of the area, just remains of an old rock house, an old mine, and a fishing community. There's a gravel pit up there. Yeah, there is a gravel pit. It looks like as of a few years back, some houses have been built in the area, and it's now gated off, so we couldn't go all the way to the end. To the Pelican Point itself, yeah. yeah. The area has some very, very beautiful views of the lake, the mountains as the background. And as we sit there looking around, I really couldn't help but think of those poor three boys being savagely murdered and then thrown into this frozen lake. Mm-hmm. We did find the marker of a pelican saying Pelican Point, but that was it. I think it was more marking the gravel pit. And I also couldn't find anything stating where the cabin was located either. Right. Well, all right, folks. I think that uh, that's enough horror and tragedy to start off the Halloween season. Yeah. <laughs> Fear not. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with even more tragic murder. Yeah, next next one's going to be bad. <laughs> yeah, so we'll have to do something light and happy in November to kind of wash away some of this, perhaps, huh? Yeah, we could do an entire episode of Dad Jokes. <clears throat> Which, by the way, I have one for you. Oh, good. <laughs> Okay, a bunch of different birds were chilling in a large group when another type of bird came out of nowhere. Sorry, lads, I have just arrived from Europe, says the bird. Ukraine? asks another. Nah, mate, I'm a pelican. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me you get it. Oh, yes, I get it. (laughs) Okay. Asking if you're a crane bird. Yeah. yeah. Ukraine? <laughs> I thought it was funny too. Nah, mate. <laughs> that was it? No backup joke? Oh, no. no I I'm thought not, that I'm, was good enough. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> all right, then. Well, thank you all for joining us once again. 
Uh, if you want to stay up to date with us, as always, we're most active on the Instagram. At Rebel at Large. Uh, we'll have photos of our adventure up there on our website. RebelatLarge.com, where you'll find links to our Patreon, merch store, email, and other social deals. We'll talk to y'all here in a couple of weeks. Safe travels. We'll see y'all down the road. I said that wrong. I'm sorry. Named James. Named Jerome. The writing reads, In memory of Harry F. Hayes, September 19th, 1894. No. Yeah. The writing reads, In memory of Harry F. Hayes. That would have made him only like uh, 17 years old when he did this. Yeah. 1894. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.